0: Customer engagement used to be all nice restaurants and tea times. But with ZoomInfo, you can engage with the right customers across all channels from one platform.
1: Engage customers at zoominfo.com. Zoominfo, how business goes to market. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com/slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com/slash Washington Wise.
2: Hello and welcome to The Weeds. I'm Jerusalem Demsis. As most of you know, I write a lot for Vox about housing policy, and there's something going on right now in the UK that caught my interest. Here in the United States, we're facing a severe housing shortage. A recent report by Freddie Mac estimates 3.8 million housing units are desperately needed right now to meet demand. How we've gotten to this point is no mystery. In much of the United States, particularly in the places where people really need to live for good jobs, it's illegal to build enough homes. Not only is it illegal to build a giant apartment building in large parts of Manhattan, it's also illegal to build small apartment buildings, quadplexes, duplexes, townhomes, and even mother-in-law suites in your own backyard. These regulations don't just restrict the type of building, they restrict a bunch of other things that drive up costs. For instance, minimum lot sizes. These cause new single-family homes to be much larger than they need to be. It squeezes the supply of small single-family homes and makes it a lot harder for first-time homebuyers to find an entry-level house. As a result, housing activists and experts have mostly advocated for states to step in where localities have failed and begin taking responsibility for their housing crises, notably places like California, Oregon, Connecticut. They've all taken steps to enact statewide zoning reform. But today, we're going to look at a different country and a different solution. My guest is John Myers, He's the co-founder of London Yimby, yes, in my backyard, a pro-housing organization in the UK. John has a really interesting proposal to make housing even more local. John, welcome to the show.
3: I'm really excited to be here.
2: So the story in the United States about exclusionary zoning restrictions is pretty well documented, right? Like after explicitly racist zoning laws kind of get struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional, facially neutral zoning laws sort of explode over the country in an attempt to kind of control the racial makeup of different neighborhoods. Over time, these have become pretty clear class barriers to entry in different neighborhoods. But I'm curious, like how did the UK's problems develop? Is there a similar sort of story there? How did you all kind of arrive at your current moment?
3: There's a long story there. And The biggest event that we really see is around the time of the Second World War. So we can go back from 1865 to 1939, and we can see that wages grew about three times as fast as the price of houses over that entire period. And then just before the war started, we banned the construction of new housing, and we then completely brought in a new zoning system that essentially required a discretionary permission for almost any construction immediately after the war. And since then... We have essentially haven't built enough. So since the end of the war, we've never built, we've never grown the housing stock at the net rate that we grew it at in the 1820s or in the 1930s. And you know, it's almost impossible to find other things that we make or that we build where we've, we're doing less well than we did in the 1800s. And just comparing wages and prices again, from 1939 to 2016, house prices grew twice as fast as wages. So that process had gone into reverse, basically.
2: Do you have similar sorts of zoning restrictions? I mean, it's like in the United States, like obviously single family housing is sort of um, one of the big ones people talk about a lot. But, you know, there are a variety of these kinds of restrictions that um, have made it difficult to build uh, sufficient housing. How does it look in the UK and what what's kind of restricting the ability to build sufficient homes?
3: Yeah, I mean, we don't even really have zoning. Zoning will be kind of a step forward from what we have right now, which is that you basically need discretionary permission to build anything. And so pretty much everything is illegal unless you manage to talk the local government into giving you a permit to build it. And in fact, there was a huge controversy over the last year, where the government effectively tried to introduce a by right process so that you would at least know what you could build. And this was heralded as a massive step forward. And there was an enormous backlash, even against that. And I think the government has effectively decided not to go ahead with those reforms. So as bad as it is in, in the most restrictive places in the United States, but it's that bad, all across the entire United Kingdom.
2: Well, it's always nice to know that America's uh, not not doing the worst in something. Um, so uh, let's let's turn to your proposal here because I first heard of it. I think uh, Tyler Cowen, who's an economist at um, George Mason University, um, wrote about this proposal. Um, it's called street voting. So tell us what what is street voting?
3: So the idea is just that there are plenty of places, plenty of streets where you could very easily take single family homes and replace them with apartment blocks or maybe even just with townhouses, maybe townhouses, duplexes or triplexes, perhaps. And that would be economically viable. You'd create a lot more housing. You'd often create a more kind of walkable street because you'd be creating more customers for local businesses. It would be more viable to have shops and other things in the area that people wouldn't have to take a car to use. So it's kind of sp- broad repair is somebody else's term for it. You're you're aiming to densify some of these really low density suburban areas. And it's super hard to do that across an entire state or across an entire suburb. The California YIMBYs have done incredible work on allowing some of that densification, but there's still a long way to go. And in England, we're facing an even tougher problem. And so we were looking to try to find ways that we could actually get through. And one idea we came across was well what if the people on the particular street the residents on the particular street could just kind of release themselves of some of the zoning restrictions and, and allow more density on that street and so they could allow single-family homes to be turned into these triplexes or maybe apartment blocks and you'd have to have safeguards around that we're suggesting a two-thirds voting majority we're suggesting it's the vote is by the residents on the street not the owners so you get protection for for tenants and other people who actually get their say rather than just being excluded from the process but we've had a lot of traction with that kind of idea
2: the idea essentially is that people would vote on what development happens on their street. And you mean literally street, you mean like just the block between <laughs> two intersections um, right. and people get to make those decisions for um, that specific community. And so in, in the U.S., like obviously local control has been something that people are really anathema to, to increase, um, feeling like that's going to actually increase the problem we're having because we see as we increased local control in the United States, people have actually been opposed to change, opposed to development. Um, that's kind of the the rise of the social called NIMBY, not in my backyard phenomenon is, is, a, is a direct result of of allowing folks at the local level to gum up the process. So why did you decide to move in the other direction and, and why do you feel like it's not going to um, exacerbate the problem?
3: The legal process we're talking about would only let people opt in to more density. It's not suggesting that they could kind of ratchet back and, and restrict density even more, although frankly in many of these suburbs it's hard to envisage how you could restrict density even further and certainly in the uk it's extraordinarily difficult to build anything so that might be a little bit less of a concern for us because it's hard to imagine a system which is more restrictive than the one we have right now but essentially we ended up at it because we've seen for the last 70 years people have been trying to fix this system and housing secretaries come and go they get fired the enthusiastic ones try and get things built they get moved on Governments proposed something, as I said, just for this relatively minor reform of bringing in by-right zoning. The last housing secretary got replaced and the government has seems to have retreated somewhat from those proposals. So it's incredibly difficult, in England at least, to get these kind of reforms through. And this seemed to us something that we could pretty much get a coalition behind, a broad coalition, cross-party in fact, of people who want more housing and who believe that this can be a way to enable more housing. In, in an environmentally friendly way, in, in in good places.
2: I would suppose that it's possible that for any given development, it's possible you could convince the government to approve it, but you wouldn't be able to convince the locals to approve it. So why do you think that local individuals be more amenable to increased housing rather than the government?
3: So when we created the National Health Service in this country, Clement Attlee, uh, who created it, essentially was asked, how did you talk the individual internists, the doctors, into?" Uh, accepting this and he said well we stuffed their mouths with gold And, and in one way you can kind of see that is what we're proposing here because the uplift an individual homeowner can get for the right to turn a single family home into say two triplexes in many places is absolutely enormous you know and we've done focus groups We've surveyed people on this, and certainly not everybody is up for that degree of change. But there's a certain amount of kind of economic benefit that really does make people get out of bed and think about these things. And, and we think this kind of change is drastic enough that it really will.
2: So there's a lot of good research, at least in the United States, Uh, Catherine Einstein, who is at Boston University, and her co-authors have sort of looked at the makeup of who shows up to these kind of public meetings. And it's usually very kind of unrepresentative of the broader public. Most notably, you're more likely to be a homeowner and more likely to be much older um, if you're showing up and voting in this place. Um, I know you mentioned earlier that you're trying to include these safeguards to to try to get like two thirds majority before a decision can be made and, and made legal. And you can see changes in the development schemes in these places. Would you expect to see it as unrepresentative in the UK when you have these votes go through? Or how are you going to create safeguards to make sure that, you know, kind of underrepresented and lower income and tenants are are going to be included in this process?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And let me unpack that into two parts, if I may. So I think one of the big problems of the way it works in this country at the moment and maybe in the United States as well is that you get highly privileged people who are extraordinarily resistant to change, who have a massively overweight influence in what happens in the process, veto players, if you want, you can call them that. And that happens because the zoning happens through a kind of customary political decision process. And so each individual politician is worried about getting replaced by the party or in a primary, that they've got a whole kind of different ways that they can be attacked in. And that makes them very vulnerable to these veto players. And so our belief is that if you have these direct democratic mechanisms where you actually do have a majority for change then it'll be much easier for that majority to overrule a tiny minority of people who just don't want any change at all you know we call them bananas build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone um and so the other thing is i think if you do have that kind of direct democratic process yes it requires a certain amount of effort to go out and vote but it's voting about your street and people care about the place where they live it's a lot easier to be motivated about that. And it's just one vote. So it's not like you have to go and attend endless committee hearings. You don't have to go and lobby politicians. You don't have to try and become influential in the local government. You can just turn up and say yes or no in the ballot box. And we think that's a great way to empower the less privileged communities who are really excluded from many of the processes that we have right now.
2: I think that this is uh, one of the things that is hard to imagine from the American context because, you know, I live in Washington, D.C. This is the nation's capital. And uh, I was looking at uh, voting and local elections in the U.S. And there are wards in D.C. that struggle to get out of the single digits when people are voting in local elections. And it's not even extremely high, even when we're looking at national elections, which I think in the U.S. are uh, have much higher turnout. So is it just a much different culture of voting in the U.K.? Or like, how are you going to get people to show up for this? I mean, if they're busy for their jobs, it's not like specifically that they don't care, but it's just hard to make that kind of a trade off if you're, you know, already not willing to vote in in in, like mayoral elections. Like what what's going to change your mind here?
3: Turnout is definitely better in the UK than it is higher in the UK than it is in many parts of the United States. But one of the goals of this kind of reform is to actually push change into those areas which have been incredibly comfortable and not having change for a very long time, which have used zoning to kind of exclude and and fight change. And so you you actually do get turnout in, in some of these suburbs. And if you dangle very large amounts of money in front of some of those homeowners, some streets will annoy the other streets by voting in favour of more development. We're, we're pretty confident about betting on that. But then coming back to communities in the centre of cities who have historically been disenfranchised and haven't turned out to vote, in the UK at least, you see a lot of development concentrated in these underprivileged areas. So you, you kind of could argue that actually we don't necessarily need to be encouraging even more development in these communities unless they want it. And so if people don't pass a vote in their community, then that, that that's kind of that's fine by me. And there are other examples around the world which give us plenty of evidence that you will get good turnout and you will get some of these votes passed. And I'm happy to talk about those at some point if you like.
2: Yeah, for sure. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about why people are, would choose to build more housing in their block in the first place.
4: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to the weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital-I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new shift sleeper sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burroughs' furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds.
2: Welcome back to the weeds. Our guest today is John Myers, and we've been chatting a bit about his housing proposal and how it would work in the United Kingdom. I think often people think that while there's a broad-based economic benefit to zoning, individual homeowners who see their areas get denser are going to experience financial repercussions. But there's reason to believe that isn't the case. And I think you've touched on this earlier in the episode as already. But the thinking goes, when your neighborhood up zones, the value of your property actually can go up. If you're only allowed to build a single family home on that piece of land, you can probably sell it for a lot of money if you, you know, add a different kind of accoutrements, whether it's, you know, a pool in the backyard or or an extra bathroom. Or things like that, but there's like diminishing returns at some level. But you know, when you upzone and you say like, okay, well now 10 people or 10 units of, of housing can exist on this land, each individual unit will be less expensive than that single family home. But you're going to get the ability to extract rents essentially from 10 different groups of people. And so that means all of a sudden developers will be willing to pay you a lot more money for your land and it's going to increase the value of these homes is, is the way the thinking goes. So so in that model, we should actually see property values rise when upzoning happens. But you know, when I first heard this proposal, I was kind of skeptical. I, we have like lots of research and anecdotes of local homeowners um, lobbying their cities to keep their neighborhoods the same. But if there's this massive financial benefit, like, why don't we see homeowners lobbying their local zoning boards to just upzone their just one lot or things like that? Like, why is there no one who's just like, man, I could make $10 million if I just got this to happen? Why don't we see that?
3: Well, I mean, I think we actually do see quite a lot of homeowners who'd love to do more with their lot. And we see a lot of people who who complain about the restrictions on them personally. For developing, there are a lot of people who'd love to be allowed to develop so long as nobody else was. But in terms of why it doesn't happen on a slightly bigger scale, I think you have to come back to these kind of committee processes. And as you say, it tends to be a very vocal, kind of privileged, small group of people who turn up and shout. And it takes a huge amount of effort to put a zoning change through on the current process. I mean, you have to, as you said at the beginning, zoning was designed to stop change. It was designed to stop new people moving in. It was designed to stop change in the neighborhood. If you started to look at how to design a system to block urban change, you would probably end up with a set of institutions which pretty much the way that zoning is decided right now. And so if you want to encourage change in zoning, you've just got to make it easier to upzone. Does that make sense?
2: No, it does. I, I think one of the things I want to explore here is just potentially other reasons why people are keeping their homes the way they are beyond just sort of the financial changes. So, I mean, earlier this year, I, I think I was, I was in a Twitter conversation with Alex Tabarrok, who's also at George Mason University. And I had made the point earlier that a big part of the reason why people were afraid of changing their neighborhoods is because of the financial harms they feel like they're going to see, um, whether or not that's true. People are really scared about something that has you know all of their life savings um, changing and in, in value and that that's a really uh, concerning thing and that perhaps if we had a better social safety net in the United States, you'd be able to kind of lower temperatures in a lot of this conversation because people wouldn't be afraid of, you know, massive medical bills or or other kinds of financial emergencies completely wiping them out. And, you know, the point that he made and, and the point that some other people who agree with him made was just that this misunderstands why people want to maintain control over their local area, that it's not a financial reason um, entirely. But a large part of it is just that people like to have homogeneity they like to buy into certain amenities, they like their street to look a certain way, they really enjoy these specific features of low density, even in urban areas. It is something that has real effects, especially if they have concerns about the type of makeup of the people who live in their area, whether they have prejudices against renters or different racial groups or class backgrounds or things like that. So are you concerned there's not going to be a lot of voting for increased housing production because people's financial motives are not actually the driving force here?
3: Well, I completely take the point that financial motives are not the only driving force here. And you also see that in new HOA formation in ex-urban development, where people voluntarily choose to opt into kind of legal restrictions on this. But I do think there's a massive difference. As you said, as you said, if you ask one homeowner, would they like their lot up zoned, very often they will say yes, I'd love that. And it's a personal financial decision for them. When you get up to the entire city, people are much less averse to change. And so the only question is. Where does that stop on that scale between one people and 100,000 or a million people? I'm pretty happy to bet there are groups of 10 or 20 houses which are very happy to take all of those upzoning funds in exchange for replacing, having the permission to replace their single family homes with duplexes and triplexes. And let's not overstate the problem here. You know, I mean, a place like Palo Alto would be an amazingly better city if it had far more housing and if if you create some rental units in palo alto it's not like they're going to be suddenly become a hotbed of crime that will scare the neighbors so i I think it's possible to overstate the concerns about change here and what all we're trying to do is solve the politics of letting the people who are willing to accept change and disruption opt for that and to stop a few kind of tiny group of veto players from blocking them from doing so
2: well, let's talk about the politics a little bit more then, because, I mean, I think you've mentioned that attempts to change the or even institute any kind of zoning um, reform have been met with uh, a lot of uh, backlash. So talk to us about the recent developments there.
3: Well, about a year ago, the British government came out with a proposal for England saying, OK, we're going to make development much more certain. We're going to have zones where you can build a lot more. And even in existing urban and suburban areas, we're going to zone to allow a certain amount of additional development. And there was an incredible counter-reaction. I must admit, even I, cynic as I am, didn't expect quite how strong that counter-reaction would be. It's led to the formation of an entire new alliance um, of people campaigning against these sorts of changes, against zoning reform, against imposing more housing through targets. And so it's probably honestly been counterproductive in the sense that it's toxified the politics of getting planning reform through and made, made change more difficult now. And I think it's going to take the new housing secretary a lot of work to move on from that.
2: One of the things that I think is is at least a stated concern of people who are concerned about these types of um, changes is uh, worries about like kind of predatory behavior that could occur, right? So let's say, you know, the street voting proposal passes and then, um, you know, a developer knows that, you know, what we need to do in in conjunction with maybe some property owners in an area is that we need to pressure people to vote for upzoning. And it could be things where they're like paying people to do so uh, or there's providing them that kind of financial benefit there. And, you know, that's debatable whether or not not their net worse off. I mean, perhaps it's good that they can extract money from developers and landlords. But at the same time, like I, I could definitely see a situation where more disadvantaged groups are are kind of really pressured and pushed by landlords and, and developers to make a decision that maybe they per- would not prefer for their own community. So you know what kinds of safeguards are going to exist for that sort of uh, happenstance?
3: Let me say up front that these kind of street vote proposals are most likely to work, I think, in areas of single-family housing. And historically, those have tended to be more privileged areas. And so that immediate concern, I think, is probably a little bit less relevant. But in addition to that, there are a number of safeguards that we've suggested. So we've suggested a double majority threshold, where you also have to have a majority of the people who've been resident there for at least three years. So that would stop landlords kind of packing packing out apartments with, with people to carry a vote. And we borrowed an idea from California YIMBY it's, it's not stealing if you give them credit, right? <laughs> um, and uh, to say that if there've been any tenants in that property within 12 months before the development happened, then those tenants have to be paid 12 months cash rent um, at the rate that they were paying. And so there's a, there's a protection there for those tenants, which is vastly better than the protection that they get in the private market right now, where we, we don't have we don't have any rent control in this country. So essentially, we have a, a no-fault eviction provision. So tenants don't have security of tenure. And, and so this is why we've had leading tenants groups support this kind of idea, because A, we're giving tenants the vote. B, we're making sure even if they vote for it, they get well compensated. And that gives them a lot more security.
2: It's, it seems to me that like you know, this is something that also has a lot of political roadblocks in its way. And you know, and potentially this is like a, a difference in how the U.S. And, and the U.K. work, but it seems like a, a convincing elites that the, the housing production problem is going to have massive economic harms is a much more easy proposition than to tell individuals that like if you don't upzone your street, like it's going to create a national catastrophe. So like I just can you talk us through the politics of that and why you actually think it's it's much more feasible to go this route?
3: Sure. I mean, the elites in this country have pretty much been convinced that we have a housing problem for at least 50 years. The cost of land where you could build housing started going up immediately in the 1950s, almost immediately after we did this major reform. And so, pretty much every government has at least paid lip service to the idea that they need to build more housing. And the problem has come when they actually try to put that into practice, they get blocked at various levels. And so, the old joke is that England is a, well, actually, the Conservative Party, sorry, is a dictatorship punctuated by regicide and so the prime minister just gets shot by the MPs in parliament Um, and so there's a really tight constraint on what um, that prime minister can push their MPs to vote for and there's a lot of as you know local resistance to change and so our idea was why don't we just try carrots rather than sticks for the first time and there are plenty of examples in other areas where carrots actually can work quite well especially if you're offering enormous gold-plated carrots to people. Some people are going to pick those carrots up. So in our view, it's worth a try. And the the political resistance to these ideas is actually minimal. We have an incredible list of cross-party supporters from the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, the Liberal Democrats. We have the Planners Association itself, the Royal Town Planning Institute has suggested the trials of these ideas, the former head of the Royal Institution of British Architects, uh, community groups, you name it. There's there's almost no real political resistance to this kind of idea, except the people who just don't want any change at all. And I should add, in the U.S. context, I mean, the American Planning Association very kindly let me write an edition of their zoning practice publication, saying, "Why not try this in the U.S.?"
2: In the United States, you know, the politics of zoning reform are not split on Democrat and Republican lines. You know, you don't see um, sort of people at the local level. Sorting in that way, even though we're seeing increasingly at the national level, um, the Democratic Party kind of unifying around that exclusionary zoning is causing a lot of problems around racial segregation, economic segregation, and then of course wages and and broader economic concerns. Can you can you talk us through how it works in in the UK? Is it is it different there, or are there are there kind of different leaders in, in in the Labour Party or the Conservative Party?
3: It is almost the reverse in the UK. So both parties want to get more housing built. I would say the Labour Party is probably more focused on exclusively social housing council housing in the uk the conservative party is more focused on housing built for people to own because they're very focused on the home ownership rate about two thirds of the voters in this country are homeowners and the conservative party sees that as being in its best interests to continue so we have this unfortunate kind of division on party lines between the type of tenure that gets built and that has been one thing that makes it harder to form cross-party coalitions to kind of very simple measures that would just really run housing down.
2: Well, conservatives have been in power for a, a large part of this history that we're talking about <laughs> here, right? So so what, what, what has gone wrong? Why haven't they been able to in, implement anything?
3: They keep coming up against the political obstacles. So, you know, under Margaret Thatcher, the housing minister, Nicholas Ridley, was hugely enthusiastic about housing. And by the way, one of the unbelievable parts about the English system is that the housing secretary himself can call in an individual planning application made in some kind of random location in the country and decide it for her or himself. And so, you know, he was doing this. He was proposing whole new towns in areas of conservative voters. And there was an immense backlash within the Conservative Party. And so nobody would ever have described Margaret Thatcher as anything other than courageous. But even she blinked and replaced him with another housing secretary, Chris Patton, who basically Step back from all of that, and and almost none of these new towns or developments happened. So, so there are endless examples within the conservatives themselves of when it really gets to the nitty-gritty, they just they just won't they just can't ram through large amounts of housing.
2: Okay, so we have to take another break, but when we get back, we're going to talk about a few places around the world that have actually implemented similar proposals and some of the political difficulties that they've run into.
0: Businesses have always needed customers, so customer engagement has always been a thing. You know, steak dinners, golf, in-person handshakes. Not exactly efficient, though. But thanks to ZoomInfo, times have changed. Now you can engage with the right customers across all channels and grow your business efficiently and effectively, all from one platform. Sorry, steak dinner guy, we've got work to do. Unlock insights, engage customers,
1: win faster at zoominfo.com. ZoomInfo, how business goes to market. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington or wherever you listen.
2: And we're back. So, John, uh, you recently wrote a piece on what proponents of street voting can learn from Seoul, South Korea. Tell us a little bit about Seoul's system and what you took away from that example.
3: Sure. And I should say up front that I unfortunately cannot read Korean. So everything I've <laughs> read has been from secondary sources and we're still we're still learning a lot both about what works and all about the things that didn't work. But there was a law um, called Joint Redevelopment Projects in the 1990s, which designated areas of Seoul, um, mainly single-storey housing, single-family houses, or potential redevelopment, if there was a vote where 75% of the homeowners in that area voted for full redevelopment. And I should make clear that even the 25% who said no would then get forced out of their homes and would get a share of the resulting development. So in almost every case, they would make a significant financial profit, but they would lose the home that they had been living in. And that's completely different to the sorts of things we're proposing here, where it's just a permission and you can continue to sit on your single family home if you want to. Um, although you'll you'll be missing out on a large golden carrot that's sort of sitting on the front yard for you. And so this was so successful, as I understand it, that in terms of getting more housing built, that they essentially ran out of New areas of single family, single story housing that were eligible for it. But in the middle of the 1990s, there was one year in particular where it was responsible for more than 50% of the condos built in the city of Seoul. So these are very large numbers in terms of impact. And they're driven by homeowners and landlords, in some cases, voting by a 75% majority to push through this kind of immense scale of change.
2: But this policy is not still in place anymore, right?
3: It's pretty much defunct now as i understand it and we're still digging into the exact legislative history of that one of the problems with it was that it didn't have any of the tenant protections that we've just talked about so it was landlords voting rather than tenants and there were no real protections for tenants who were forced out so no cash compensation no guarantee of rehousing and that would be completely unacceptable in any jurisdiction that i can think of so obviously we can't take that scheme for a whole range of reasons and transpose it wholesale but i think what it does demonstrate is the uptake that you can get. And I'm told that there was enthusiasm in the media, there was huge enthusiasm among homeowners. So it's a question of carefully designing these things to get the right reaction.
2: The place that I've looked into a little bit more is, um, and you've written about this as well, is Israel. Uh, they have this policy Tama Thirty Eight, and um, uh, really shout out here to Alan Kahani who, who talked me through a lot of this policy and, and explained how it works, um, and who worked on it um, himself in Tel Aviv. So the interesting thing about this policy, uh, and and you can kind of flesh out a little bit more for our listeners about what it did, but that it wasn't framed as a housing production bill, right? What they saw in Israel was that you know they were trying to address the problem of they already had a lot of multi family buildings and they needed renovation. I mean, there's there's threats to earthquakes there. There's, of course, security threats there and that new new buildings were getting these kind of missile-proof rooms as well In, in when they were being redeveloped. And so there's a lot more than the financial incentive that was pushing people towards doing it. But what ends up happening, of course, and you note know, this in an article you wrote, is that it ended up providing a ton of housing production because people would agree to have their building renovated. The developer would pay a lot of the costs, um, even their rent in, in many instances uh when they were displaced for a period of time as their buildings being renovated and more units are being added or or their apartments getting larger. And it, it worked, but it, you know, it seems, it seems a little bit different in the way they framed the issue and the way that it was understood to voters. So what do, what do you think about that?
3: I agree with you. It's totally different. Yeah. And I think they were almost probably surprised that they come up with an earthquake retrofitting measure that suddenly produced a huge amount of housing, and it was 35% uh, of the new units in Tel Aviv last year, as I understand it. 35% is an incredible increase in a city's housing production from just a single measure. I think there are reasons why that obviously doesn't translate to a US or to an English experience directly. As you say, it was talking about multifamily buildings. And again, like in in Seoul, it was forcing people out of their homes. And I don't think anyone's suggesting doing that here. And I think if I'm not wrong in Tel Aviv, they were also enfranchising homeowners and not tenants. And again, I don't think that worked in the US or an English context, but it just does show, okay, there was a little bit of an element of stick here because the buildings were not going to be compliant with code anymore if they didn't go ahead with these things. But there was also a large carrot and, and they, they took advantage of the economic potential of these buildings to add more units. And so it does sort of show what you can achieve in that way.
2: I think one of the things that was uh, a drawback from the system is that because I think they were not planning for this to become a massive housing production uh, measure, people are just agreeing to redevelop their buildings kind of willy-nilly. And so in Tel Aviv, at least, you're seeing tons of construction happening and it's like, you know, it creates massive quality of life issues when that occurs. So, I mean, do you kind of have safeguards that you've built into the the UK proposal?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's an 80-page report, not written by me, I hasten to add, which kind of sets out in very impressive detail all of the protections for neighbors in relation to construction and congestion and making sure that you know you don't get parking difficulties because this is what people always complain <laughs> about and i think that's going to be really vital if you want something that's going to last because as you say construction is disruptive people don't just care about the construction but they also care about the end result and so one of the ideas in england is that people can set out their plan for what the street should look like. And they, you know, they want to reduce the setbacks. Um, they want to specify a certain kind of facades or certain heights. And again, there's a maximum level of those heights so that they don't affect the people on other streets. So, so there's a very long list of safeguards I think you need to have to make this workable. But if you do that, you can pretty much limit nearly all of the impact of this to a particular street.
2: There, there ends up being quite a bit of backlash from municipalities in Israel um, as a result of this policy. Do you feel like there's going to be really good buy-in from local governments in, in the UK as well?
3: Well, I've talked to a lot of local governments about these kinds of ideas, and plenty of them will actually recognise that there are large areas of single-family housing near to transit, near to downtown, where it would be really good to have more densification. But the politics of that for them are incredibly tough. So from their perspective, if somebody else solves that problem for them, that that actually could be quite an advantage. And then on the other side, the way this policy is being proposed in England is that what we call a developer levy would be extended to these developments. So 20% of the value of the uplift from each development would get paid directly to the municipal government, and they can spend that on infrastructure or meeting other needs. And those are huge sums, especially for an English authority, which probably have smaller budgets than your typical US local government.
2: I think this is uh, one of the things that uh, I think goes underappreciated sometimes in, uh, in the U.S. at least, is just that um, the vast majority of the relevant elected officials are not really themselves NIMBYs. They just don't see a political opportunity to not be NIMBYs. And uh, they're just begging someone to, to take the political hit for them and to remove the ability um, to do so. I mean, you talk to these people when they're not, you know, on the record. And a lot of times they're just like, yeah, I mean, if you would like <laughs> if the, the state government could just. Just take this out of my hands entirely. Um, I would much prefer that because, I mean, even in a situation where you are with uh, local homeowners who are opposing change, you still have to be at these really unpleasant public meetings all the time, or get yelled at by constituents. If anything ever does actually get through or get passed, and it's not a, it's not a sustainable metric for actually allowing for any sort of growth or change to occur, you know, in these neighborhoods.
3: Yeah, I completely agree. You know, the vast majority of planners that I know went into planning to plan for things, to plan for housing. And they're immensely frustrated in many cases that politics stops them from doing that.
2: Well, I mean, we also cited in the American context sort of Houston and uh, in, in one of your articles about this proposal. In Houston, it's not like that you have street voting, but you do have a situation where you can opt out of different zoning regulations. So they were able to sort of citywide legalize lower minimum lot sizes so you could build smaller homes um, rather than having to build very large single-family homes. And uh, instead of just forcing everyone to do it, they just said, okay, if you don't want to do this in, in your area, you can just opt out of doing so. My my expectation when hearing this story was just that people had no idea this was going on, and so they, they didn't think to opt out in a lot of cases, and that's why I ended up working. Um, but do, do you know anything about how the Houston system worked, um, and have you taken lessons from that in your, in, your own, in your own work in the UK? My
3: understanding is that that, opt-out mechanism was one of the reasons why they were finally able to get the reduction in minimum lot sizes through. And if it hadn't been for that, it would have been vastly more difficult or impossible to reduce minimum lot sizes across the city. But also, as I understand it, you still can opt out if you want to, if your street or your block or a combination of those wants to opt out. And yet there are maps available showing that vast fractions of the city have not opted out. And in fact, even in the most wealthy areas, there are pockets which have and pockets which haven't. And maybe those carrots actually are having an effect after all, because as you're aware, there's a lot of low-density single-family housing in Houston getting turned into townhouses or other more dense layouts. And th- there's there's obviously advantages to be gained from that.
2: I mean, Houston is, uh, Houston is EMB's sort of dream in many cases in the United
3: States. <laughs> Paradise. Yeah.
2: So w- where do you go from here? Where's the street voting proposal going from here? How are you trying to get it implemented at this point?
3: The government had essentially said, it was going to do this uh, shortly before it replaced the housing secretary for the backlash against all the other reforms that he'd announced the previous year and so we're currently engaged in talking to the government again and still building our coalition we've now got um 15 mps from the ruling conservative party supporting this measure and i think the new housing secretary knows that we need to build more homes and he's aware of the political challenges and i'm hoping that he will realize that community actually saying we want more housing is so unusual that that's sort of political dynamite and it will be really helpful to him in getting more housing built.
2: I think one of the interesting things is I mean in the U.S. we have different states so there's like a lot of opportunity for experimentation but um, <laughs> from where you are it's kind of just you're either doing it at the local level or you're doing the entire country. <laughs> well thank you so much for coming on The Weeds. We enjoyed having you.
3: Great. Thank you so much. That was lots of fun.
2: Thank you to John Myers for coming on the show. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Lippy Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts, and I'm your host, Jerusalem Demsis. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It goes out every Friday. Go to vox.com/weedsletter to sign up. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media podcast network.
0: Businesses love data, like really love it. But is just having data enough? Yeah. Nope. Oh. Because the smart businesses, the really smart ones, use ZoomInfo. It leverages data to unlock useful insights. Insights so you know who to reach and how to reach them, letting you grow your business. So ask yourself, is your data insightful? Now it is. Unlock insights. Engage customers. Win faster at ZoomInfo.com.
1: ZoomInfo. How business goes to market. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise.